portion of Jacob's life because God comes through with great, great clarity as the kind of God who pursues you in the way you want to be pursued. We have this tendency in life to sort of lose ground. We lose ground in life and we lose ground with people. But there are these people, maybe in your life, like in my life, that seem to not just sort of be there, but they're there for you, maybe praying for you, maybe drawing you back at times when you need that, but you're not looking for that. For you, maybe it was a grandmother or a grandfather or a dad or a mom or a friend or a brother, and they knew things about you, and you thought that maybe grandma didn't know because you did things that you didn't think your parents knew, but your grandma knew you, and she still stayed with you, and you didn't know she knew until years and years later. And you're like, Grandma, how come you never said anything? And she just, she loves you. You know what I'm talking about? God is that kind of person, and then some. And we see that with great clarity. So I love this story about Jacob, and another reason I like the story about Jacob and just Jacob in particular, is because modern people can identify with Jacob very, very easily. He's not a perfect kind of person, and he has lots of struggles, lots of troubles, lots of doubt, lots of confusion, and uh, quite a few backsliding moments. And so let's go ahead and get into this morning's text like this. I want to set it up for you along the lines of three movements. In the passage we're about to read, there are are three movements or divisions. First, there is Jacob's life before the dream. Then there's the dream. And then there's Jacob's response to the dream. And in every one of these movements, the sky above or heaven above is referenced. There's the, the dark sky or the heavens are closed to Jacob. And then in the dream... The heavens are opened over Jacob, and then he responds to the openness of heaven over the world and over his life. It's all very, very helpful to to recognize the movements, and we're going to see not only does heaven open over Jacob, but we're going to get into why does heaven open for Jacob. Now, with that, let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. And I want to warn you that This is not just one of my favorite passages, but it's been very meaningful to me personally, and it really does inform me uh, with regards to ministry. And so I got got caught a little off guard. I got a little emotional uh, in the first service, and um, it probably won't happen again. You've never seen that around here. Uh, But in all seriousness, uh, there are some key fundamental truths that this very simple narrative captures that have the power to transform your life and investigate you in the best of ways so that you can be remade. So I hope that you'll really pay attention to this morning's message. Starting with verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, and it's not named, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. 
I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome or dreadful is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Uh, let's just start at the beginning here. First off, we see the condition of Jacob before the dream. And we see three things with uh, incredible clarity and brevity. The narrator here paints a picture for us. And the first thing he lets us know is Jacob's come to a place, a certain place. We don't know the place. There's not a name for the place. You know why the place is not named? Because it's unremarkable. There's nothing there. There's no tree of Mamre. There's no, you know, pass. There's no mountain. There's no wadi. There's no creek. There's no well. There's nothing. You know how nothing something has to be to not get a name? I was thinking about this. You know, Logan Cummings, good friend. He talks about how he's from Mule Shoe. You blink one time and you miss it. There's a one mule and one shoe on the mule, and that's all there is. And that place has a name. This place has doesn't even have a mule or a shoe. It's just in the middle of nowhere. It's a nowhere-nothing place. The other thing that's kind of interesting is it says that Jacob uses a a stone for a pillow. Why would you use a stone for a pillow? Because you have absolutely nothing else available to you. He doesn't have a knapsack. He doesn't have, you know, a garbage sack he can waddle. He doesn't have like a exterior jacket he can fold up. But he just, all he has for a pillow is a stone. He's penniless. He's all alone. He's stuck out in the middle of nowhere, which is somewhere between Abilene and Muleshoe. <laughs> Everything's falling apart. Have you ever felt that way? Like things are just kind of falling apart? Things had fallen apart for Jacob in a really, really bad way. Let's, let's back up the story. When Jacob was a itty-bitty baby in his mommy's womb along with his brother, there was a prophecy that was prophesied over him, and the prophecy said that Older brother will serve the younger. 
meaning Jacob, who was the second to come out of the womb, Jacob would be the one through whom God's promise would flow. Jacob would be the one who would be the head of the clan. Jacob would be the one who had the special favor of God rest upon him. But after he was born, guess who dad favored? It wasn't Jacob. It was the oldest, which, by the way, is the way it's supposed to be in the Bible, dad. Uh, but anyway, so here's, here's Jacob, and he's not favored. God said, you're going to be the one. He wasn't treated like the one. Dad, Isaac, doted on Esau because Esau was hairy. I can't think of a worse reason to dote on somebody than that they were hairier than the other person. And, you know, and he liked to hunt. He was an outdoorsman. And Jacob was sort of the mama's boy, homebody kind of person. And so Jacob got overlooked by dad. He was emotionally neglected by his dad. And consequently, he grew up starving for the blessing of his father. He was so starved for the blessing of his dad that he did things that he wouldn't normally do. Just like when you're starving for a blessing, you do certain things you wouldn't do. You violate certain boundaries you wouldn't normally violate. And so in the previous chapter, we understand that Jacob, who is now older, he's still hungry for the father's blessing to the point that he pretends to be his older brother. His older brother's gone hunting to get some stew to come back so his dad is going to give him a blessing. And while the older brother is gone, Jacob pretends to be the older brother, puts on the clothes and the goat skins on his arms so he feels hairy like his brother and all the rest. And, And he goes in and he deceives his aged, blind dad. Who does that? Jacob. He's a deceiver, and he tricks his dad into blessing him. And once the blessing is given, it's too late, and then Esau arrives, and then the truth comes out, and Mama gets in trouble because she helped him, but he's mainly in trouble, and his brother's not happy, and Dad's not happy, and eventually Jacob has to leave town. He's a lying, manipulative, deceiving, cheating thief, and he takes off. Now, part of us, though, says, okay, I know that's how Jacob is, but I feel sorry for him because he didn't get his dad's blessing. He didn't receive what it is that I think most children need, which is the blessing of the father. Kind of reminds me of another story. It's one of my favorite stories. It's not in the Bible, and it shouldn't be. It's kind of a weird story. It's from Greek mythology. It's the story of Oedipus. You've probably heard of Oedipus. He's the guy who murdered his father and married his mother. Does that ring a bell? How would you like that to be on your tombstone? Here lies the son who murdered his father and married his mother. That's not happening. Uh, You know, who, who would even think of that? That's a terrible person, right? Well, there's a backstory to this. Let me give you the rest of the story. There's always more than what meets the eye. Oedipus when he was in his mother's womb, had a prophecy spoken over him. And the prophecy was, this boy is going to grow up to murder his father and marry his mother. It was a prophecy from the Oracle of Delphi. Now, this is all Greek mythology. This is Sophocles, okay? This probably is not true. But that's how the story goes. So, sure enough, Dad did what Dad would do. King Laius takes his son, gives him to a shepherd, and kindly sends the shepherd to a mountainside to leave the boy there to die in the elements and to be eaten by wild animals. Well, unfortunately for the king, Oedipus is handed off from that shepherd to another shepherd and eventually 
Oedipus makes his way to some other people who raise him. But Oedipus doesn't know his dad, never gets the blessing of his father. Years later, here's how the story goes. He runs into this old man, they have an argument, and Oedipus kills the old man. Later on, Oedipus learns that the king of Thebes, King Laius, has died. So the throne is open. And so here's what Oedipus does. He goes to Thebes and he answers the riddle of the Sphinx and he becomes the king and he marries the queen, which happens to be his mother. Years later, the truth comes out. And when the truth comes out, the the queen hangs herself. And Oedipus, in his grief, not only over the truth coming out that he wasn't aware of, but over the death of his mother, takes a couple of pins from her dress and gouges his own eyes out. And here's the moral of the story. The moral of the story is, if he's old enough to be your dad and she's old enough to be your mom, don't murder him, don't marry her. (laughs) No, that's not actually the moral of the story. Here's the moral of the story. It's the moral of many of the Greek tragedies. Here's the moral. Life is tragic. The tragedy is seen in when you don't get what you need, the love and the encouragement and the support and the blessing. You don't have what you need to give to others. In fact, you will turn around and you'll give misery and suffering and even death to other people. Even those that ought to love you and you ought to love in return. There's a tragic cycle in life. And the question that's raised in some of the Greek myths is, how do we break the cycle? Because fate rules the universe. How, how, do, how does Oedipus get out of the circle? How does Jacob get out of the circle? How do you get out of the circle? The good news is, The Bible was not written by Sophocles and popularized by Sigmund Freud. It's written by God, and fate doesn't rule the universe. God does, and God actually cares deeply. And because God cares deeply, there is no necessity of this. God can break the cycle because history is linear, and it's under the dominion of God. Jacob's in this bad state, though things have fallen apart. He's got a stone for a pillow. He's in the middle of nowhere. He's probably not going to see, I know he doesn't, he doesn't see his mother again for the rest of his life, the only person who fully cared for Jacob. And the author of the scripture here gives us a little extra dose of context when he says the sun had set, that is to say, The sky above, heaven was dark, heaven was closed, heaven was silent to Jacob. Everything was falling apart, but it wasn't just that the whole world or God's actions were dark to Jacob. God himself is dark to Jacob because Jacob's never encountered God before. He's never met God. And you know there's a big difference between knowing about God and knowing God or you know, subscribing to a body of beliefs and doctrines or an ethical, you know, obedience to some sort of set of rules. That's way different than knowing God. Jacob's never met God. His grandpa, 
Abraham had met God, talked to God. Sarah had talked to God. Isaac had met with God. Rebecca, his mom, had talked to God. They'd all met God, but not Jacob. Now, he's a man at this point. I don't know how old, but he's grown up, and he's never met God. God is dark to Jacob. So dark that in the middle of Jacob's darkness, he doesn't even think to cry out to God because what you'll notice in this passage is he doesn't repent. He's not praying. He's not saying, God, help me. He certainly doesn't say, oh, God, I'm sorry. In fact, he doesn't even complain to God. There's no lamentations. There's no griping to God. There's no no communication with God at all. He is cut off in his mind. So cut off that God probably doesn't even enter his mind. Now, you would think that if Jacob hasn't met God by this point, he's certainly not going to meet him right now because Jacob is on the run. He's done the lying and the cheating and the stealing and he's not crying out to God and he's not repenting. You would think that this is the last place on earth, the last moment in his life where he would ever meet God. And then there's a dream. By the sheer, utter grace of God, there's a dream. Now, this dream changes things, but I want to get into the dream here for just a second. There are three things that you notice in the dream. First of all, you'll notice that there's a stairway. And it's not ladder. That's a bad translation. And when we think about ladders, we think about something that's rather vertical. One person can be on it at a time. The Hebrew word here means stairway or grand staircase. And it's obviously rather large since it goes all the way from heaven to earth. Don't know how far that is, but in the vision, it's obviously a long way. And it's very broad because you've got all these angels, hundreds of angels, thousands of angels probably. I don't know. They're ascending and descending uh, this staircase at the same time. So there's this grand stairway, and of course there are the angels, which are the royal messengers of God who are carrying God's orders and carrying out God's orders. It's it's a picture of the royal power of God on the move, flowing out to the world and flowing back to God. It's almost like heaven is this grand heart that is pumping God's royal majesty out and bringing it back again. So you've got the staircase And you've got the angels ascending and descending the staircase. And then you see God, number three, standing over or next to Jacob. Now, in the text that I read, it says that God was standing atop it. That's one way to translate it. Another legitimate translation is standing over him or beside him. The Hebrew in and of itself is unclear. It could go either way. Most of the time when you have that combination of these particular Hebrew words, I'll spare you all the grammar, it's very boring, but when you have that combination in the Bible, most of the time it's God standing next to or over something, not atop something. And then God says to Jacob, which communicates a nearness, because if God were in heaven, he'd be crying out to or calling out to. But the real clincher here, the reason we know that God is with Jacob right there where he is on the ground is because when Jacob wakes up, he says, this is, this is the house of God. This is an awesome place. Surely the Lord is in this place, not up there. That wouldn't be a surprise. We all know God's up there in heaven. What shocks Jacob is God is in this place right here, right now with me. Bottom line, heaven gets opened over Jacob in a majestic way and he is freaking out because he doesn't expect this. You'll notice the response. It says that he was scared. 
it's an awesome thing. It's a dreadful thing. He's a little bit confused by this. You know why? Because in the Old Testament, you just didn't barge into to God. Moses says, I want to see your glory. God says, I can't really do that. It'll, it would destroy you, but I'll tell you what, you stand over here in a corner, I'll walk by, you can see the glory from my backside, and Isaiah's in the temple, he sees the glory of God, and he says, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm like coming apart at the seams. Jacob knows uh, this shouldn't be happening. Why is this, what is going on here? Why, why is this occurring? Because he sees two things that are kind of a shock to him. First of all, is the openness of heaven to the world. He sees the, the glory of God, the angels ascending and descending from the throne, and, and the, the veil is pulled back, and he sees that things are going on that he wasn't aware of, and that God is actually active and present, and he's in this place. And let me tell you something, you need to know the openness of God, the openness of heaven to this world, because in your time of need and suffering and difficulty and questions, it is not going to suffice for you to say, well, you know, I know God is beyond space-time right now. You need him here and present and in control. You don't want life to be run by fate. You don't even want life to be run by heaven, who, by, by God who's way over there in heaven. You want his active presence. You need to know this or see this in your mind's eye. Otherwise, you'll fall apart. I got a text earlier this week, and I'm going to be very vague about this. I, it was me, me and a few other people got a text. And it was like, pray for me. And it was a grandchild. And I won't tell you any more than that, but when you think about someone that's in trouble, whether it's a son or a daughter or a grandson or a granddaughter, and it could be all kinds of things. Maybe this person found out there was infidelity in the marriage. Maybe the person finds out a friend has committed suicide or a boyfriend or girlfriend breaks up or we discover drugs under the bed or there's pornography on the computer. And there's all kinds of problems that youth have, which is, by the way, exactly why we are pressing it, with the Lord's direction as quickly as we can with regards to getting a youth pastor because kids are in trouble. But God is in control. I have a really good idea of what's going to happen in the interim. We also have some really good candidates that, that are right there on the horizon. God takes care of things. I thought this was kind of interesting. Uh, last Sunday when we kind of said the goodbyes to Mark, uh, Hugh Brown mentioned, well, you know, it's going to be hard to fill the shoes. I mean, they're big shoes. And so I thought, well, do I need to put on the resume, you know, 6'4 or over? <laughs> well, guess who shows up today? Jackson Bauer, the person who saved the president twice playing. <laughs> oh, I guess that's Jack Bauer, isn't it? Uh, uh, you know, for the first time, we got Jackson Bauer playing the, the bass. Just like, oh, hey, the Lord provides. And, uh, and he's as big as Mark, but better looking. And so we don't have to put that on the... I don't... <laughs> We don't have to put that on the resume now. We can go for anybody, no matter their height. The way that God works things out. Here's my point. God is active in ways that we can't see. And even when you can't see what God is doing, you need to be able to see that God sees, that God is up to something, even though you can't see what it is that God is up to. You need to see that you don't need to see, because somebody sees, and he doesn't just see and watch from a distance. He's in this place. And whether it's your son or your daughter or your grandson or your granddaughter, God's in that place. And you would say, yeah, but you don't know what they've done. It's not about deserving. Jacob did not deserve a visit, but God was in this nowhere, nothing place. And when it comes to your children or your grandchildren or your friends or your spouse or whoever it might be, 
You need to know God is in that space. But it's not just that heaven is open to the world in a general way. Heaven is open to Jacob in particular. And this is, I think, what blows Jacob away as much as anything. Like, why me? I wasn't repenting. I wasn't running to God. I was sort of running away from things. I didn't think I was going to be the head of a clan. I was doubting all the promises. I was doubting the prophecy. I was doubting my place. I've got nothing. I deserve nothing. I'm not even thinking about God. And yet heaven opens over me? What? And then when he wakes up, there's this little statement. Oh, this this is heaven's gate. You know what he's talking about? He's saying, here's how it works. This is heaven's gate. Let let me give you the background. When you think about heaven's gate or the gate to heaven, you need to have two things in mind. Genesis chapter 11, which creates the canonical or biblical context. You remember over there in Genesis chapter 11, the people get together and they say, hey, we're going to build this tower of Babel. Uh, it was it was somehow a, a, a gate, a stairway to God. And you need to also think about the Mesopotamian context because in that time, in that culture, in that place, people built these little pyramids with stairs up the sides of them. They're called ziggurats. They were places of worship. And here's the way people thought. And people still think this way, although they don't build these structures in this way. The thought is, I know how to get to God. We're going to build a structure with human hands. We're going to put it in an important place. And then we're going to ascend to the gods. And when we ascend to the top, we're going to offer the sacrifices. We're going to offer the prayers. We're going to do the ritual. When we've gotten to the highest place that we can get. And Jacob says, that's not the gate of heaven. That's not how it works. This is the gate of heaven. That's what he's talking about. What does he mean? Here's what he means. All my neighbors, everybody else around here, they've got it wrong. You don't build something with human hands that starts down here and gets up there. God builds the stairway. In fact, we don't even ever ascend a stairway to heaven. There are no stairways up to heaven. Here's how it works. God builds the stairways and he descends down to you. That's how it works. It's not by our efforts. It's the sheer grace of God that he is open to the world, that he's open to Jacob, that he's open to Oedipus, that he's open to you. It's the sheer grace of God. That's heaven's gate. But that still doesn't answer the question, how does a holy, holy God have a relationship with us? How, does, how, how could God come down here without us getting crushed? Why would God come down here in the first place? Uh, there, yes, there's a stairway, but give me the mechanics of it. How does this happen? Jesus answers the question. Centuries later, there's this encounter that is recorded for us over in John chapter 1. And uh, there's this fellow named Philip. He's got a friend, Nathaniel. Philip comes to Nathaniel and says, hey, 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 we found the, you know, the Messiah, the, 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 the Christ, the, you know, the Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, Nazareth, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? God doesn't come down into middle of the nowhere places like Nazareth or Muleshoe. 
Philip doesn't argue. You can't argue with some people. This is even back before the days of Twitter. And he just says, come and see. Just, just come and see. I'm not going to argue with you. I know who you are. Just come. So, okay, Nathaniel comes. Jesus sees Nathaniel, and he says to Nathaniel, oh, here's a true Israelite, someone in whom there's nothing false. And, you know, Nathaniel, you know, you know yeah, that's me. That's my reputation. How do you know me? And, and Jesus says, oh, before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. Now, Philip is, is invited Nathaniel. Philip was way over there. Jesus wasn't anywhere around. And Jesus' knowledge of Nathaniel under the fig tree, that shook Nathaniel out of his doubt. Now, we don't know what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree, what he was thinking under the fig tree, but Jesus' knowledge of that moment was so profound that it blows away all the doubts. And Nathaniel confesses, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus turns around and he says something that's even more profound. This is for our purposes. Jesus says, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I'm the stairway. I'm the way God came down from up there to, to down here. I'm the stairway upon which the angels are ascending and descending. Jesus did not come to show us where the stairway was, to enumerate the steps or to show you how to take the steps. That's a terrible religious misinterpretation of Jesus. I hear people say things like this all the time. Oh, there's different... You know, there's different paths to God, different stairways you can take. There are not multiple stairways to heaven. There are no stairways to heaven. There's one stairway from heaven to you, and that's Jesus. Jesus says, hey, I'll show you the stairway. You know, you've got the five pillars of Islam. You've got the, you know, eight-fold Buddhist path. You've got different types of yoga, yana yoga, bhakti yoga. I don't remember all the yogas. Raja yoga. I'm not really into yoga. A few exercise, okay, whatever. But even with Hindus, oh, there's multiple paths. They'd still say, well, and here's the four of them that that are the best. You got some people that misunderstand Judaism and they say, oh, it's the Ten Commandments. You keep the Ten Commandments and you're going to go to heaven. That's a misinterpretation of what the Ten Commandments were ever about, period. But some people say, yeah, 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 there's these steps. And there's different steps that you can take. There are no steps that you can take. Jesus says, I'm the steps... And the way the gate of heaven works isn't that we build them and then we ascend them. God builds them and he descends them straight down into your life and into mine by his sheer grace. It's just amazing, the gate of heaven. And sometimes we get confused by this a little bit. Like, okay, I know what I need to do to one day go up to heaven when I die. And this is true. Jesus lived the life you should have lived, died the death you should have died. One day when you die, you're going to go up there to heaven. That's kind of part of the story. And that's wonderful. But the gospel is this, really. Jesus Christ came and he lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died. So that God could come right down here into your life. Because God is desperate to do life with you 
Even when you don't want to do life with God, God desperately wants to do life with you. And of course, when you die, you will be with God for all eternity. But eternity doesn't start when you die. Eternity starts the moment you receive the God who came down to you. It's sheer grace. It's amazing grace. And Jacob starts to kind of get, oh, this is the gate of heaven. And to his credit, he builds a little, you know, little altar and he names the place and he's blown away. But I want you to look at the response of Jacob because it's so bad. It's so horrible. God has basically said, look, I'll be with you wherever. I'll never leave you. I'm going to make sure the promises come to pass. You're going to be, you know, I'm bringing you back to the land. This is all going to be yours. The inheritance is going to be yours. I'm going to make sure of that. I will not be stopped. I will not be dissuaded. I'm going to bless you no matter what. I'm going to be with you wherever you go. I'm never going to leave you. Gives him all these promises after showing up in sheer grace. And you know what Jacob does? Well, if you do this, and if you do that, and if I see that you're following through, and if, 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 then you get to be my God. That's a terrible response. It's just horrible. If you do, God's been completely unconditional. The only way you can fully and appropriately, authentically respond to the one who's utterly given himself to you is to utterly give yourself to him in return. And God's already crossed the finish line for Jacob. He has descended the stairs and he's right there. And Jacob, I, I imagine he's still laying on the ground. Well, you know, oh, if, 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 if you do these things. That's a horrible, conditional, inappropriate, lackluster response. And you know what God does? He takes it. He doesn't drop Jacob. He is his God. And he never leaves him. And he's always with him. And he does everything he promised he would do. And Jacob doesn't deserve it. Didn't deserve it before the offer came. Didn't deserve it after he received the offer. Because his response to the grace of God was so crummy. Now, I'm going to say something you've probably, you probably thought you'd never hear a pastor say. Okay? I hope you understand this and take it like I mean it. If you've never said yes to Jesus, if you've never received His sacrifice on your behalf, if you've never acknowledged Him as Savior and Lord, if you've never received the sheer grace of God into your life because of what He did for you and you didn't deserve it, would you please give Jesus a half-hearted response? Would you please just give him a little weak, okay, fine. You say, what? All of our responses to God are half-baked. I don't know if you've noticed that. Even still, I've been a believer for over 45 years. And my res- responses to the grace of God are still incomplete. I'm growing. But until you see that he is so gracious that even... A half-hearted response or an incomplete response is enough. You still don't understand the incredible grace of God. It's like Hosea and, and his wife who was the prostitute. What a messed up relationship. But Hosea remains faithful even when his wife does not. Because I guess she said yes. And they got married, sort of. 
You say yes to Jesus, and I'm just telling you, you're marrying up, and you will not deserve him for the rest of your life, and you will never respond to him appropriately, and he will still never leave you nor forsake you. And that's what changes you. You know, earlier in, in ministry, I had these ideas. I was, you know, I was the firstborn son, and there is something to that whole keeping the rules deal, and something changed along the way, but, you know, the responsible one, and shame on you, and all that stuff. And, and, and maybe, you know, the whole preacher thing of, you know, we're going to preach a message, and it's going to be so good that people are instantly going to be transformed into the likeness of Christ, and you're going to walk out of here with a glow around your head. Something like that. Over time, here's what I have learned. Observations of myself and other people. Transformation in the image of Jesus comes very, very slowly. And there are moments of backsliding. There are moments of regression. It's not good. It's not great. It's not the best response to Jesus. But he still takes it. And sometimes our responses are kind of superficial and they're half-baked. And God knows your heart and he knows the impurities of your motivations. And he's still there. What I'm saying is, when your relationship with God starts, it starts with God having crossed the finish line for you. But God's okay with you starting at the start. God's okay with you beginning at the beginning. And over time, as you get to know this gracious, gracious God who showed up when you did not deserve it and who stays with you even when you don't deserve it and who takes your half-baked yeses all the time, when it starts to dawn on you, this is the kind of God you're dealing with. It will undo you. And this is why. We do what we do as teachers or small group leaders. This is why I do what I do as a preacher because there's nothing better than the gospel. So if you've not responded yes to the God who's already said yes to you, if you don't get started, if you've not started yet in the race that God has already finished for you, would you just give God a half-hearted yes? You can start there. I don't know where everybody is here. I don't know where everybody is there. But if you've not yet received Christ, I'm not expecting you to become a monk tomorrow. You don't have to immediately lay everything on the altar as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. But I'm telling you, you give God an inch, He'll take a mile. You will become like Christ. And that's a good thing because when you become more and more like Christ and eventually you're transformed into His likeness, here's what happens. Your whole life is open to the love and the joy of God, and there's nothing better than that. But right now, I know you're a little bit closed. All you've got to do is God, give God a little opening. Give Him a start. And He will, by His grace, take you where you need to be. But just start at the beginning and say yes. Even if it's not full throttle, could you say yes? Let's go ahead and bow our heads, close our eyes for a moment of prayer. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're here, you're there, you're watching, you're tuned in, and you say, you know, I, I get it. That's how heaven works. God's come down to me. He wants to do life with me. He made it possible. Jesus is the stairway. I get it. And I don't know that I can ascend the stairway, but maybe I could just put one foot on the first step by trusting Jesus, and that's it. I'm just going to step 
on the one who did all the steps for me, lived the life I should have lived, died the death I should have died, and I'm just going to trust him, and that's all I know. If you could just say yes to Jesus right now, right where you are, it would be wonderful. You just pray to God, God, I know that I've sinned. I know I've fallen short. I know I need a Savior. I know I need rescue. I know that I'm in this weird uh, cycle of destruction where I'm victim and victimizer. Can't help it. I need rescue. I need saving from my sin and selfishness and self-righteousness and independence. What I'm saying, God, is I, I, I want Jesus. I accept Christ as my Savior and Lord as the stairway whereby you come down and take up residence in my life, not just now, but forever. I trust Jesus as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. It's real simple. It's not a big fancy formula, but if you prayed that prayer, you meant business with the Lord, I want to encourage you in that relationship with Him. Please reach out. Send an email to Ernest or just office at msbchurch.com. We'll respond to you. But for now, let's go ahead and, and stand.